thought we might have a little liturgical moment here and, and say that um, it may be important to you to know that I know and everybody who teaches here knows and, and sort of the church officially knows uh, the difference between a sermon and a Bible study. <laughs> um, what we do here in church is, is not a Bible study. I mean, we just read two chapters of Scripture, and we didn't even read all of those. Um, you know, in a Bible study, you're, you're basically, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do, you know, methodological Bible study, but basically in a Bible study, if you're like just studying a text, you're kind of look at what's the big main idea here, and, and kind of like an hourglass, you know, then you're thinking, are there a couple of big themes going on here, and then maybe you're breaking it down into paragraphs, and then sentences, and then if you know your Greek and Hebrew, you're looking up, you know, Greek and Hebrew words, and it can get actually as technical as you know, prefixes to a Greek term, or, you know, tearing apart Greek participles. That's always a lot of fun for those of us who did Greek exegesis in seminary. And then what a good Bible teacher does is then he or she just puts that all back together and says, now, you know, this is, this is what this passage is teaching. That's not what we're doing here in a sermon. A sermon is meant to take its place in a liturgical service like we're doing here. And when I prepare a sermon, Dennis, Todd, whoever else, we stand literally in the, in the place of a priest saying, God, here's you and your text and your voice, and here's this congregation. What are you saying to this congregation through this text? That's all you can do in 20 minutes. That's all you can do well in 20 minutes. <laughs> so it leaves people like me or Todd or Dennis or whoever uh, to make decisions about these texts. And um, I feel like you know, we've been looking at Acts and kind of asking and answering the question, how is it that the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts created the Jesus life in that new church, and how might he be doing that in this church? And I think what the Holy Spirit is highlighting this morning is this notion of calling. Uh, that, you know, we, we read in the beginning of Acts 13, this calling of, of uh, Paul or Saul and Barnabas to find their role in God's story. I think it's crucial that we as a church and we as individuals find our role in God's story as well. So you're going to start hearing, you've heard a little bit already about Michael going out to plant a church. That's a calling. Uh, we've probably, we're probably pregnant with a couple of other churches, you know, I think probably one more for sure, maybe two. Uh, we sent Michael as sort of a missionary to uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, we're about to send Pablo to England as kind of a missionary. Uh, lots of you have felt callings to help the cruises uh, down at the um, riverbed. Lots of you work around the church here. You have other callings. This, I think, is very important, and it's very ancient. That's why the psalmist, part of what he has in mind when he says, show me your ways, Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth, he's asking really for, can you show me the way for my life? Or, as we just read in the gospel, Jesus promised that when the Spirit came, when the Holy Spirit came, He'll guide you into all truth. And what the Spirit receives from me, Jesus said, he'll make known to you. That was the excitement that those, that, that early church was feeling. Oh, my gosh. Jesus, you know, think Matthew 10 or Luke 9 or Luke 10, the sending passages in the Gospels where Jesus sent the 12 out. And now the Holy Spirit is sending Paul and Barnabas out. The excitement they were living in is, oh, my gosh, this is true. What Jesus said would happen that the Holy Spirit would, would hear from him and then guide the church through it is actually happening. So when we pick up the story in the book of Acts, it says that they were worshiping God. They were also fasting. 
Fasting is, is um, especially in the uh, context of prayer like this, fasting is just simply a way of kind of, you might say, minimizing our humanness and our human um, desires for the specific temporary purpose of a, more acutely hearing God. So that's what's happening here. They're really trying to listen to the Holy Spirit, who indeed does speak to them. Now, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall here. This is one of my very favorite passages where I would have loved to have known how did this happen. You know, did the roof open up and they heard an audible voice? Did one of the prophets in their midst go, I don't know, you know, I might have had some bad pita bread last night, but I think maybe the Holy Spirit's telling us that we should send Paul and Barnabas off. I would have loved to have known how this happened. But what you need to know for confidence in your own life is that it did happen. What Jesus promised, it did actually happen. The Holy Spirit was speaking to and guiding the church. And so they commissioned them, laid their hands on them, and sent them off. And then the text tells us that the first thing they did was to preach God's word in the Jewish meeting places, which kept the tradition of Jesus going, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So they presented clear evidence of God's gift. God corroborated it through their work with miracles and wonders. And their answer, and this is the part that's important, their answer was, we are following orders. Sorry, not their answer. Their explanation for what they're doing is, we are following orders. Yeah, how? Whose? I mean, just look me in the eye here for a minute. I know that I know that I know that even many sort of sincere Christians today cannot believe that God does actually still speak. And that he does actually still guide people. And that he actually still does call people. We can kind of believe that he did it in the past, but it starts feeling a bit subjective, doesn't it? I mean, let's just get real about this. When someone says, God is speaking to me, how do we know? And we can all line up 20 stories of people who said God spoke to me and it turned it out just weird. And it wasn't God speaking at all. Well, what do you do then? What does a church do then? What does a person do then when you're trying to look at and try to discern possible present-day leading through the lens of a lot of confusion, hurt, pain, weirdness? Well, I don't know. There's probably 20 answers to that question, but the one thing you cannot do is come to the conclusion that God no longer speaks or leads or guides his church. He indeed does. And, and Paul and Barnabas were very clear about this in their own hearts and minds. We're following orders. We're doing what God required us to do. The sense of it is something like this. God raised up Israel to be sort of his cosmic rescue force on the earth, often called salt and light, and that they would be that to God. They, of course, failed, and Jesus not only fixes all their failures or does what they didn't do, but he fulfills all the promises. And so it goes, Israel to Jesus doing it, and now these guys are mimicking Jesus, and the way this story ends is we get in on it too, We get in on it through the Holy Spirit. And this is why it's so important that we hold on to this. Not for doctrinal precision alone, uh, certainly not for charismatic reasons alone, but look at the effect. The message of salvation spread like wildfire through the region. Without risk, without trying to hear from God, without people trying to discern and wholeheartedly follow callings, no spread of the gospel. You're only here this morning because someone took a risk. You're here this morning because someone thought, I think I should share the gospel with you. Or I think I should start the youth group that you got saved in. 
Or I think that I should start the church in which you came to faith. Somebody thought they heard God and started something that could spread the gospel. Well, there's a human element to all this. You see in, I think it's in chapter 14 in the passage, that God calls, we recognize. So the text said that Paul and Barnabas handpicked leaders in each church, and after praying, their prayers intensified by fasting, they presented these new leaders to the master to whom they had entrusted their lives. See, they had entrusted their lives to this master, Jesus, and they had expected that the Holy Spirit would speak to them even as Jesus promised they would. Now, this is a bit of an aside, maybe even another bit of a liturgical moment, but very important to me. In the years and decades ahead as we're together, you're going to occasionally see me in all of my big bishopy robes laying hands on people and saying, God, make her a deacon. God, make her or him a priest. When I lay hands on people, I do not lay hands on women and men with primary reference to me, though they would have just vowed to obey their bishop. It's one of my favorite parts in the sermon. I love it when I get to say, will you obey your bishop? And they say, yes, we will. Uh, But that's a sort of a very low-level thing that's happening here. When I lay hands on people, I'm commending them to God. Their vision didn't come from me. Their vision came from God. And when I, as a representative of all of you, lay hands on on the heads of these people, we're saying, God, take them. Because this experiential God connection is crucial. You see in the passage this morning that Paul meets conflict. But he's undaunted. Why? Because he understands and trusts his call from God. He trusts the discernment of the church from which it came, and he trusts his commissioning by the laying on of hands. So this experiential thing is not, you know, just kind of a little aside. It's core to anybody who's ever tried to do anything. Now, for the last few minutes we have in this sermon, I'm going to say to you the smartest things I know about discerning call. You're going to be tempted to write it down. Don't write it down. Don't even try. I've already arranged it. I think it's already on the website. I do want you to sit back and listen to this with your heart and just let the Holy Spirit pick out the one sort of idea that's crucial to you. The rest of it, you can go to the website and get it. A big bunch of this, and I didn't, sorry, I didn't carefully footnote all this, but a big bunch of this just I owe to Elizabeth O'Connor at Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. She's one of my very favorite authors. Uh, Her book called and Committed, The Eighth Day of Creation. I can't remember the three or four books that have really helped shape my imagination about all this. So here you go. Number one, gifts emerge and evolve in response to a call. Many people... And I would say with all dear love, people in this room do not yet know the full scope of their gifts because they've never heard and obeyed a call wholeheartedly. And you will not know the full spectrum of your gifts until you hear a call and you pursue it with your whole heart. Two, calling asks that we set out from a place that's familiar and relatively secure For a journey to a destination that can only be dimly perceived, and that because of the many obstacles along the way cannot be certain that we'll ever reach it. I mean, Debbie and I's calling to start this church was totally a journey. We thought we were going to go to Carlsbad. 
And then we thought we're going to go to West L.A. I mean, Debbie was actually looking at homes with a real estate agent in West L.A. We thought we were going to go to, uh, like, the Santa Monica area. And then we ended up here. Well, we only ended up here because we committed to the journey step at a time. Here's what's important about that. When we don't allow ourselves the possibility of failure, when we're controlled by perfectionism or pessimism, spontaneity dies. And we are literally tied and bound. Right in front of my office, if you've ever been there, you maybe have noticed this. It's not really a painting. It's not really a plaque. It's a little piece of art that somebody gave me 10 or 12 years ago, but I've just never let go of. It's black. It's kind of like a collage. And there's a picture of a little boy hiding under like a 1950s or 60s style desk. And the headline of the picture says, Courage to Fail. Because I remind myself of that every day when I walk into my office. Nothing good is going to happen for you unless I have the courage to fail. That's just part and parcel of calling. And if you don't have that, if we don't give ourselves the permission for that, we will literally be tied and bound. Number three, when we think of calling, there's a mutually dependent relationship to spiritual formation. And here I think of some Willardisms, but I don't know where I got them, so just, you know, we bow to Dallas. Unheeded callings go away meekly without much protest. Let me say that again. Unheeded callings go away meekly without much protest. If we explain away the voice of God, rarely will he respond with fire and lightning. Here's why. God cooperates with the desires and inclinations that make up our current character. He will not normally bug us. The thought of being left to ourselves and to a broken set of system of desires that are out of phase with his kingdom should move us to hear, trust, and obey God. When I think of the intersection of calling and, and spiritual formation, I also think this, that we need to develop an interior life if we're to be the people who can hear and obey a call. Here's why. Anger blocks love. Fear makes us play it safe. And when you think of anger and fear and those sorts of internal things, those are issues of formation. And um, I can just tell you, if you're pursuing spiritual formation and you're not doing it in conversation with a call, if there's no external, otherly uh, aspect to your current, you know, sort of pursuit of formation, you're going to be missing something really big. And if, on the other hand, you're thinking call and call and mission and out there and not pursuing your own inner transformation, you'll be missing something very big. And then again, when I think of the intersection of formation and calling, there's appropriate disciplines that any of us need to have to realize any potential. I don't know where I got this idea, but I love it. Everyone would like to be Michelangelo now, but who would have liked to have spent four years laying on their back on scaffolding suspended under a dome that no one had yet heard of. He's only Michelangelo because he did that. Next big thought, I think, concerning calling is that sometimes at the center of our own pain or an empathetic pain that we might feel towards others, we hear a call. Sometimes I've asked myself uh, or others, what do you cry about? That can alert you to some empathy that maybe is the seed of a calling. What makes you angry? That could be, again, a little seed of, of, a, of a passion towards an injustice that you want to fix. 
what makes you joy, what gives you joy, what makes you laugh. Again, that might be a little inkling towards passion that could be an inkling towards calling. Next idea, we need to celebrate call in our own lives and in the lives of those here at Holy Trinity and have a commitment to creativity, to community, to listening to each other, and to risk-taking. And the reason we need this uh, commitment to risk-taking is that pursuing call always risks rejection. The hearts of some of our friends and family will not be with us. When uh, it sort of got out that Debbie and I were moving from Idaho back to here, uh, one of my lifelong friends uh, said to my brother, what's wrong with your brother trying to put an anchor in his life? You know, like, what's he doing now? You know, I have this, I've had a very interesting journey, and not everybody appreciates it. Hello? Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of different things in my life, and, and not everybody gets it. And I'm not saying I even did it all right at all. Not even close to saying I did it all right. But you need to know that pursuing call will always risk some of your friends and family not getting it. And the reason is, is because somewhere in all of us lives a dream killer. And what I'd like to see us learn to do here at Holy Trinity is learn to be dream catchers and to enjoy space and freedom and grace that God gives us and give it to others as they start experimenting with what their own calls might be. A couple more big ideas here. If people only begin something, when they're fully committed, very little would ever get done. And I know that's what stunts some of you, is you can't get to the place. You're, all, you're almost all like guys who can't commit to marriage. Are you with me here? You, you're like, I just know because I talk to you. A lot of you, you think, well, I'm just not 100% committed yet. Well, very little would get done if everybody waited for that last little one-half of 1% of commitment. What's better to do is if you think you're hearing a call, take a step. If that step seems good, take another and begin to invest yourself in the dream and your understanding of it, and your commitment to it will grow if it's right. This is one of my favorites because it feels so personal to me. In discovering call, one learns to be well and at play in the world. And I just want to tell you, as somebody who's tried to hear and obey calls for 30-some years, I can just tell you that's absolutely true. Nothing makes you feel more well or at play in the world than knowing you're doing what God has asked you to do. Well, if this is true, then there's very little in our life more important than hearing God's call upon our lives. So what if you're here this morning and you say, well, Todd, I'm just not quite sure I'm hearing a call. What should I do? So again, here's the kind of things. Don't write it down. It's on the website. Here's what I would do if I were you if you're wanting to hear a call and you're not. First, realize a couple of important things. God does not meanly play hide and seek. God does not meanly obscure his intentions. Sometimes it's God's will for you to initiate. There have been several people in my life who I've coached and mentored who have prayed and fasted and kind of asking God, well, should I start a church in Portland or should I start a church in Miami or whatever? Should I go teach at this seminary or go teach at that seminary? And they just are the most sincere people in the world. They fast, they pray, they seek counsel, they do everything, they just don't hear anything. And I will often say to them, well, then do what seems best to you to do. Here's why. If the real you isn't in play, if what you want and think is best really isn't in play, then spiritual progress is hindered. Sometimes the reason God wants you to initiate, at least in your own mind, is that it shows who you really are. And unless the real you is in play in your formation, nothing much can happen. 
So there's a couple of practical steps that I think you could do if you're, you know, just kind of dealing with this issue of call. Number one, focus on just a sort of generic, you know, general conversational relationship with God. Because guidance is just one aspect of an overall relationship with God. Two, do everything you can to seek spiritual fullness. Three, meditate on God's word, because probably your call is going to bubble up out of and be connected to this ongoing story. Next, be alert to promptings from the Spirit. And if you get no answer, this is very important. If you get no answer, simply ask God why. Lord, why aren't you answering me? And then do anything he tells you to do. He might say, well, you know, you need to forgive your mother. Or he might say, you might feel like, hey, I want to read the book of, I feel like I'm supposed to go read the book of Mark. And maybe in reading the book of Mark, you'll get the answer. So just do whatever God tells you to do. And then three, seek counsel. And then just if you're doing all that to the best you can, then just do what seems best to you. Learn and adjust to ever-growing obedience as you go. And as you just sort of start heading down a path that seems the best to you to do, you can count on the fact that God will guide you. I end with this favorite quote of mine from Madeline Lingle. Talking about hearing call, she wrote, this is the irrational season when love blooms bright and wild. Had Mary been filled with reason, there'd been no place for the child. Amen.